So there's a, there's a series of, of videos on the internet of, of kids receiving cochlear implants and hearing for the first time. It's incredibly cute. Just YouTube it. It's wonderful. But it's the perfect illustration for this week's text. Because imagine what it would be like to never know what it is to hear. And then to have your senses flooded with this, with this new thing called sound. The sound of your mother's voice. The sound of rushing water. The sound of laughter. A new world opens up. As we return to the glorious Gospel of John, I'm going to pull us back and, and preach on John, on John 9. If you, if you, if, if you remember, uh, Arthur preached on the Good Shepherd in John 10. I'm going to pull it back to John 9. And it's a, it's a meaty passage, but as you hear it read... As, as you hear it read, I want you to, to listen especially to the words of Jesus and the words of the man who was healed. Because this is, this is one of the seven signs that Jesus works in the, in the Gospel of John. And it tells us something profound about the work and works of God. The very works that we, in union with Christ, are also being called to act out. And so as you hear this text read, as we walk through the text... I want you to remember that the words of the healer and the words of the healed are much more important than the words of the haters. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Gabby? Where's Slim put the, where's Slim put the mic? Okay, that's fine. The, there we, there go. we go. Okay. John 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it, in, in, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said... No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought, the Pharisees, sorry, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes, was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. 
They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one they say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how can he, but how can he see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? They hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now, this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a bl bl man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who will see, sorry, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Uh, and Lord, we thank you that you have given us your spirit uh, in order to live the lives that you've called us to. Lord, this, this morning, uh, Lord, heal our blindness. We pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, let's get the party started. Broken it down, four, four sections. The healing, the haters, the healer, and the healed. The healing, the haters, the healer, and the healed. It's like, it's, it's a common thing in a lot of, of Jesus' miracles that there are just people who like, don't understand and also are really deeply invested in not understanding. But we'll get there. First, the healing. So this is, this is the sixth sign that Jesus works. And interestingly, nobody asks him to do this one. There's no complaint. There's no, there's no begging at Jesus' feet, please heal me. There's no, there's no outcry. Verse 1 says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Now somehow the disciples know that that's his condition, and so they ask Jesus a question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, already we're starting off on the wrong foot. The, the, the disciples assume that because he was born with this disability, somebody's got to be at fault. 
Now, while that may sound prejudiced, it's not entirely unreasonable. Sometimes, sometimes suffering is the result of sin, but it's profoundly unloving to then argue that all suffering is the result of sin. And we actually do this, we actually do this a lot. And we do it most explicitly with the poor people in our midst. Something, that's, something that, that we societally love to do, particularly in a capitalist society, is we assume that if someone is poor or someone doesn't have a home, that we blame, we blame them. What did you do to get put out on the street? What did you do to make you poor? Or what did you not do to make you poor? Our current system tells us that, that, that poverty and laziness are interchangeable, which is false. Sometimes it's the case, but there are so many cases where that's the assumption. And when we do that, we deny the humanity of our brothers and sisters. We act like, Job, we, we, we act like Job's friends who see Job and his suffering, and they call him to repentance rather than reaching out in care. You'll note this is actually a theme in Jesus' interactions, that he, that he doesn't begin with judgment. He begins with interaction. Even when we think of, particularly when we think of poverty, think of the reasons why someone may not have a home. Wages are stagnant. Housing's expensive. Also, often in order to get a job or even set up a bank account, sometimes you need a permanent address, which obviously is a problem. Healthcare is expensive. Mental health, mental health runs rampant through our communities. You have, you have practices of predatory lending that perpetuate racial inequality. You've got women and men fleeing from domestic violence. There's so many reasons why people might find themselves in that, in that state. And you'll note that everything that I've just mentioned is something over which people don't have, you don't have control. And yet those are some of our most common reasons, particularly for homelessness. And yet we're like the disciples. Our first question is, what did you do to get in this situation? Rather than a question that affirms the humanity of our brothers and sisters. What's your story? How can I come alongside you? We often presume guilt until someone sufficiently proves to us that they're innocent. But Jesus responds to his disciples in a way that undercuts these assumptions. Jesus says in verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then Jesus does this very, very strange thing where he spits on the ground and makes some mud, and then he puts it on the guy's eyes, tells him to wash in a pool, and he's healed. Every time we read through one of these signs, I want us to just pause and consider how ridiculous these miracles are. This is a man who was born blind. This is not a person who was blinded, like somebody who knew what it is to see, and then lost it, and then it's restored. No, this man has never known even what it means to see. He's not someone who just like saw darkness all the time. Like he doesn't know what seeing is. Try this. Close your eyes. Don't, don't fall asleep. Just close, your, close, your, close your eyes. Okay, what, what do you see? Darkness. Right? Okay, now, take, open, open your eyes. Now, put your hand over your left eye. 
what do you see out of your left eye? Nothing. There's a difference. It's like, it's, like, it's like us trying to think about God's creation out of nothing. Like, we think of darkness. We don't know what nothing is. And yet, when we think of, I, I, was, I, was, I, was, I went down a, a wonderful rabbit hole of, of, of YouTube videos of folks who were born blind. And it's, you, they don't know what seeing is. They imagine what it, what it could be like to see, but, no, but they don't understand what it is. It's like, it's like if I was, it's like if I was, if I was born with Spider-Man's powers. I know what it's like because I've dreamed it, but, but like if, if, if I was born with Spider-Man's powers and I talk to all of you who have no idea what those are, like I don't understand what it's like to not have superhuman strength, durability, reflexes, and speed. Because for me, like it's not superhuman, it's just, it's just me. Like it's, it's, I, I haven't known any other kind of life. This man never knew what it meant to see until he meets Jesus. And Jesus spits on some dirt and rubs it on his eyes and tells him to wash in a pool and his life has changed forever. See, this, 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 this particular sign reminds us that Jesus heals how he wants, when he wants, and as much as he wants. He can do it with dirt or he can do it with a word. He can do it when it's requested, or he can do it when it's only dreamed of. He can heal the small, and he can heal the unfathomable. It's one of the perks of being the God who created it all. But we'll circle back to the dramatic nature of this healing later, because, because, because what follows it, what often follows uh, in Jesus' miracles, is what happens when haters see the work of God. It begins innocuously with, with the man's neighbors. They're mostly shocked, as I'm sure you and I would be. If, if there was someone who we knew who had a disability since birth, and then we saw them with that sense restored, we'd be incredulous too. Even more so if they told you that some dude named Jesus rubbed dirt on them, and that's how, the, that, that's how they were healed. And so in their curiosity, his neighbors bring them to the local church leaders, the, the Pharisees, and on a Sabbath day, no less. And so the Pharisees have field day. The next 21 verses are an interrogation. The Pharisees are obsessed with finding out the details of how. You'll, you'll, you'll remember that they're looking for any excuse to kill Jesus at this point. And so they go back and forth. He's not from God. He's not keeping the Sabbath. Can an evil person do these kinds of signs? And they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then they turn to the man himself. And, and if you look back over that passage, you'll find that his responses are consistent. Hey, the, the dude who healed me, like, I don't know that much about him, but he must be a prophet. Because nobody, like, this isn't a thing that people just, like, do, heal people who have been born blind. And when that's clearly not the answer that the Pharisees want to hear, they go, they go to his parents because they're seeking to undermine the story. And so his parents are like, no, like, go ask him. Like, he, he's the one who would happen to. Go ask him. And so when the Pharisees come back in, verse, in verses 24 to 34, it's, a, it's amazing. The, 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 the guy who's been born blind, the entire Gospel of John is full of just wonderful humor and snarky characters. I don't think there's anybody more, more snarky than this guy except for Jesus himself. So verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. 
Now remember, this whole time, these Pharisees have an ulterior motive. They want Jesus dead. And this whole time, they're insistent on not seeing the truth, even though it's right in front of them. Verse, verse 25, he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Verse 26, the Pharisees say, well, that's wonderful. Let's rejoice with you. No, 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 no. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And verse 27 is a wonderful response. I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) Proper response is, oh, no, he didn't, because, oh, yes, he did. (laughs) The healed man is basically saying, goodness, y'all, this this Jesus guy is really living rent-free in your heads. Why don't you just go ahead and become his disciples? And this infuriates the Pharisees to the point that they get defensive and childish. This is what they did with Jesus the previous chapter when they they, they went back and forth with him about them being children of Abraham and Jesus responds, no, actually you're children of the devil because you're doing things that the devil would do, not things that the patriarch would. And so when they respond to Jesus, they call him a demon-possessed Samaritan. In verses 28 to 29, they yell frantically, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we don't know where this guy came from. And so the king of snark responds, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do do nothing. And then the Pharisees throw him out of the synagogue, accusing him of being steeped in sin at birth. What do we learn from this? Two things. Uh, The kind of anatomy of a hater, so to speak. First, Haters find it impossible to rejoice with those who rejoice. The first reaction, if you witness or hear of a miraculous healing, one that you know could only be miraculous, is your first reaction interrogation. Now, there is, there is such thing as healthy suspicion. I'm not, saying don't, I'm not saying don't ask questions. Questions are very, 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 very important. But what about wonder? What about rejoicing with people who have experienced the work of the Lord? I know, I personally, I, I know the temptation to over-intellectualize and to over-scrutinize and to poke and to prod. I, I do it all the time. But, but next time, if someone tells you something, an amazing thing that the Lord has done in their lives, begin with celebrating with them. But what else do, uh, do haters sometimes do? Sometimes haters demand that the attention be focused on their hurt feelings rather than the work of the Lord. Sorry, that's a little... Look at the text. Note the Pharisees' constant deflection to the the Sabbath, to how Jesus healed, to the man's supposed sin. Whatever they can do to avoid looking at the fact that there's a dude who was born blind, who can see, and his joy... And his deliverance and his, and, his, and his statement of the fact, look, this guy, Jesus, did this. And yet, because it doesn't fit into their assumptions about the way that the world should work, it's invalid. Classic hater activity. 
And so in, the, in a rhetorical effort to suck the energy out of the hater aid, so to speak, that's all I'm going to say about them. Because the conversation between the healed man and the healer is the real center of this passage. And so sure, there's, there's back and forth with the Pharisees, and the man puts up a pretty good fight, but, but when he encounters the one who healed him, that conversation takes on a different flavor. So, so Jesus reveals himself to the man who had been blind, and he hits him with verse 39, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now, if you've been with us through the book of John, you may wonder what that means especially because it seems to be a direct contradiction to what's said in John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. The words judge and condemn mean the same thing in these these texts. But to save the world through him. Or at least it seems like a contradiction. See, in that verse, John is talking about the cosmic work of salvation. You will remember that the gospel is personal, communal, communal. And cosmic. It's personal. God God has called you individually in a way that's been tailored to your circumstances. If you think about your own own story, the way in which the Lord reached out to you, particularly in a way, in a way that wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily have worked for somebody else, but that's the way that the Lord needed to reach you. The gospel is personal. But the gospel is also communal. God didn't just call a bunch, of, a bunch of individuals. He called a people, a covenantally bound people, a people to whom he has made promises, a people who have, who, who have obligations to one another. This is one of the things that I've been pressing over the course of the past few weeks, this, this communion of the saints, that, that God has gathered a people, a body, body parts that have responsibilities to one another. But the gospel is also cosmic. From the Greek word cosmos, meaning the world. Meaning that God's goal has never been just to gather individuals or just to gather a people, but to redeem the world order. The redemption and restoration of creation as a whole. I want us to to constantly remember how big the story that we're in is. That, 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 that creation was, is, is corrupted by the, by the slithering tendency. Jesus did not come to condemn the entirety of creation. That's what he's saying in that verse. But he did come to judge people. Even verse 18 of John 3 says so. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, Jesus' judgment does one of two things. It either restores your sight or it blinds you. It's like the sun. It'll be either that by which you see or it'll be that which you cannot bear to look at. The man born blind gets the blessing. The Pharisees, however, oh, in these last few verses, oh, it's just Jesus back in absolutely no chill mode. There are, there are Pharisees around when he's talking to the newly sighted man, and they say, what, are we blind too? And Jesus says in verse 41, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. See, this is a, this is, this is, this is a warning to each of us. And I think it's one that we would do well 
to heed. See, Jesus is, 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 is talking about what, what social scientists call strategic ignorance. If you don't see or perceive something, you're probably not responsible for it. But once you do see it, there's responsibility there. That's an example. I'll look, I'll look way back in history so you don't have to feel it yet, but I'll get there. Slave owners in this country told themselves that their slaves were happy. Strategic ignorance. People during Jim Crow told themselves that separate but equal was perfectly fine for black people. Strategic ignorance. We buy from Amazon and ignore the conditions of Amazon warehouses. Strategic ignorance. We avoid documentaries about how social media is going to be the end of us or about, uh, about the meat industry. Well, maybe it's just me who avoids those, those things. But that's, that's beside the point. Strategic ignorance. There are many things that we refuse to know or find out about. Because deep down we know that if we really interrogate it, if we really ask those questions... It might require us to change our lives. It might change the way that we spend our money. It might change the way we treat our neighbors. It might change the way that we look at ourselves. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, look, if you're actually blind, I'm not going to blame you for not seeing. But if you claim to see, then I'm going to judge you like someone who can see. So then how ought we respond to the Lord when he says this to us? We must begin by recognizing our blindness. And not just our blindness, because, because apart from Christ, we are blind, unable to hear, unable to speak, unable to walk. And when Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we want, one of the things that he's, that, he's, that, that he's kind of teasing out when he says that we're dead in our transgressions and sins and, all, and, 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 and by nature deserving wrath, all those things, one of the things that he's getting at is is this, this absolute kind of helplessness. But the language of blindness actually does something a little different. Because sin does a lot of things, but one of the main things that sin does is it obscures our vision. And so in our greed, we forget that the people that we're exploiting are bearers of the image of God. We tell ourselves, no, we're not, we're not really amassing wealth on other people's backs. Because, that, because if, we, if we thought in those terms, that would slow our ascent to glory. <laughs> or so we think. In our lust, we, we forget that the people that we exploit and lust after are bearers of the image of God. In our hatred and our anger, we get tunnel vision and we end up hurting the people around us. Sin blinds. But not only that, apart from Christ, we don't even know what it really means to see. My testimony at, 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 at first glance is kind of seems unremarkable because I, I grew, up, grew up in a Christian home, never remember a time not knowing that the eternal Son of God died and, and, and was raised to redeem me. There wasn't a, there wasn't, there wasn't a lightning strike. There wasn't a, uh, at least in my mind, there wasn't a, a life of egregious sin where God saved me from certain death at the last possible minute. And yet God's work in me is no less drastic than the work that he's done in some of you converted in later, later in life. 
the work of, 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 of moving someone who was born, born dead and bringing them to life, that is a miraculous work. That's what we bear witness to. When we sing that song, Amazing Grace, like that's not a, that's not, that's, <laughs> we say that over and over, we say it over and over, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace. Do you understand how amazing the Lord's grace is? Brothers and sisters, when, when, we, when, when, we, when, when we were born, we're born into spiritual blindness. Not just that, but like we don't even know, we, we don't know that we're blind and we don't know what it means to see. And when the Holy Spirit takes hold of you and replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh and vitally joins you to Christ, what he does is he restores your senses. And not, and not even restore, he actually gives them to you because you didn't have them, because you, you, you gave them up. <laughs> And so we spend our entire lives not knowing what it means to see or to hear or to walk or to speak. And so when the Holy Spirit works that in us spiritually, it's a dramatic, unfathomable work of God. Think back to Christ's words right before he heals the blind man. The disciples asked, who sinned? Jesus says, no one. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Said another way. This man was born blind so that he could be healed. It's a weird thing to say. But his being born blind was not because of an act of personal sin or an act of communal sin. He bore in his body the effects of a broken world order. And we feel that. Some of you, some of you, may, some of you may suffer from, from chronic pain. A regular reminder of the brokenness of the world. You didn't, do anything to des- you didn't do anything to deserve it. And yet, because we live in a fallen world, there are these, there are these pains that we groan, that make, that make us groan for the redemption of the world because we're groaning for the cosmic, we're groaning for cosmic redemption. And so what Jesus has done in this moment, Jesus heals a man with dirt and saliva And he's making a ridiculous claim when he does that. What he's saying is, I'm going to heal creation by using creation. In fact, his life is a testimony to that. Because what the the Son of God does, this is the great miracle. Son of God comes, assumes a human nature, part of creation, in order to redeem it. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of my favorite early church theologians, he reflects on, he, in reflecting on salvation, he says, these, he says these two things that are some of the greatest pieces of early Christian theology. That which is not taken up is not healed, but that which is united to God will be saved. He took a human body. He took a human mind. He took a human soul. And because Christ took it up, it will be redeemed in each of us. But he didn't just take it up. He didn't just take us up. So uh, Maximus Confessor, another early church theologian whom I love, has a great word for what, for what humans are. We are a microcosmos, microcosm, a little world. As the pinnacle of God's creation, men and women fully living into their humanity bear witness to the good of, to the good of creation. And sin makes us use these powers for evil. But union with Christ, restores and enables our original purpose to be beacons of God's mercy and grace in every space that the Lord puts us. 
And so when Jesus takes up human nature to redeem it, the redemption of the cosmos is present in seed form. The kingdom of God breaks through. And when he dies, that seed is planted. And when he's raised, that bloom begins. And when you come to faith, and when you're united to the Lord, that flower begins to shape and take form. And Jesus says, that the, and Jesus says the words that he, said to the, that he said to the disciples in verse 4. He says them to us. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As long as it is day, we must do the works of the Father who sent the Son. Well, what are those works? What work has he done in our lives? The Son of God has restored our sight. And so what does the Christian life look like? It looks like devoting ourselves to helping others to see as well as seeking by the Spirit to have our own sight sharpened. Here's what I mean by that. There's, a, uh, there's an idea. It's called the, uh, the miracle motif. I may have talked about this before. It's the idea that once we convert enough people, social problems will fade away. If we just convert people, racism will stop, poverty will go away, sexism will cease to exist. It's profoundly naive. And that's not a knock at conversion. What, what we're called to do is not merely to seek converts. Christ has called us to make disciples. And if someone has never known what it means to see and their sight is restored, there's an entire new world to learn. And this is what the work of discipleship is. It's learning to see and learning to see rightly. Because without discipleship, that sight doesn't do us or our neighbor much good. And while Jesus was in the world, he was, he was the light of the world, and he's still that light, but he ascended in order to send his spirit into and among his people who are to be his body. And what does the body of Christ do? Well, what did Christ's body do during his earthly ministry? He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He encouraged and lifted up the downtrodden. He rebuked the proud. He walked with the poor. And if we're to do the works of him who sent the Son, that's what we've got to be, that, that's what we've got to be doing. See, all of the signs that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John are cosmic signs. They're signs that the world is not as it should be, but they're signs that Jesus has come to set it right. But Jesus setting you and I right requires that we recognize our blindness, that we recognize our strategic ignorance. In other words, it requires our repentance. It requires our acknowledgement of the fact that we don't want to look at our own sinfulness because we're afraid of what we might see. The fact that we don't want to look too closely at how we treat one another for fear of what we might find. Brothers and sisters, don't be, don't be afraid. Give that to the Lord. Confess your sins to him and he is faithful and just to forgive you. He'll even show you things about yourself that you, didn't, that you didn't know and didn't want to know. There's a, sometimes it, it goes around when, when, we, when, when we think about kind of historical sins, uh, sometimes people will say, well, you know, uh, what are the things that 50 years from now will look back and say, oh my goodness, that was a blind spot. And, and, and that... Uh, 
it frustrates me a little bit because like, sometimes we need to listen to our brothers and sisters to then learn our blind spots. Sometimes our blind spots exist because we refuse to listen to our brothers and sisters. And so we actually are culpable for not listening, for, put, for placing ourselves in situations where we don't have to listen. So I want us to consider that whenever we think about blind spots. Some of these are things that we actually you know, have no way of knowing. But some of these things we don't know because we have put ourselves in situations where it's more convenient for us not to know. But the Lord has promised to show you much more than just your sin. <laughs> because the sight, even the sight that's restored to us, the sight that's given to us is still dim throughout this life. We're all still learning. It's one of the reasons why we, why we all need to invest in this discipleship because we all need to grow. As Paul will say, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but the day is coming when you and I will say with Paul that we, we see face to face. Then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. Then we will see fully because we will be fully seen. John says it this way. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. My prayer for us is that the Lord would open our eyes that we might see. Amen. Let's pray.